New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today, Dr. William Keeping, states that we are witnessing a revolution of consciousness, the birth of a vast, unified worldview that unites and cross-fertilizes East and West, modern and indigenous, human and non-human, contemporary and ancient, leading us toward a deep collective realization of a seamless oneness of existence as revealed in a universal path of divine love. Is there a universal path of love that holds true in all religions? Where do religions intersect at the deepest level, and what is that deep level of spiritual wisdom? How do we find and embrace the transformative path of divine love? And what does science have to say about consciousness? Today we'll be exploring these questions and more with our guest, Dr. William Keeping. William Keeping is a mathematical physicist, environmental scientist, and has been a practitioner on the contemplative path of divine love for over 35 years. He co-founded the Satyana Institute as well as the Gender Equity and Reconciliation International Project with his wife, Reverend Cynthia Bricks. The Satyana Institute is a nonprofit service and training organization based near Seattle, Washington. Together with his wife, Reverend Bricks, he conducts trainings, retreats, and workshops nationally and internationally, encouraging individuals, communities, and organizations to combine their inner work of the heart with outer service in the world. He's a co-author with his wife, Reverend Cynthia Bricks, of Divine Duality, Women Healing Women, and is the author of Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and a Universal Path of Divine Love. Join us for the next hour as we explore the mysticism and science of a universal path of divine love with our guest, Dr. William Keeping. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Will, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's a joy to be back on this program. It's such a joy to have you. Do you mind if I call you Will? Not at all. Oh, great, great. I would like to begin a bit with um, your story. I think it's such, it's such a wonderful little vignette about how you first 
got on to the contemplative path from being a a hardcore scientist. So can you describe turning in your dissertation? Oh, yes. Uh, well, it, it's my spiritual training began the instant that my secular training ended. <laughs> and um, I was actually, I had finished my dissertation and all of the defense. And I was um, literally filing the dissertation with the secretary of the department. And I was very excited because, you know, 25 years of schooling and I finally receiving this highest degree. And the secretary went away to file the dissertation. And uh, on on his desk was this book uh, by Krishnamurti, who I'd never heard of. But I picked up the book, and I thought, oh, this will be fun to kind of, you know, to make fun of spirituality, because I thought, that, you know, I had a dim view of those things. Because, you know, atheism comes with the package in orthodox scientific training. And so I picked this book up, and I started reading, and I was just blown away by what I read. And then I opened to another section and I just, it, it spoke to me at a level that I had no idea, you know, what this was about, but I could feel this draw and this inspiration. And then of course I put the book quickly down on the guy's desk. So, you know, when he came back, he wouldn't see that, think I'm rummaging through his things. And he came back and congratulated me, Dr. Keepen. And so I was just this brand new PhD. And I got on my bicycle and I rode to the bookstore and I bought that book. And I stayed up until 3 a.m. just devouring it. And that really was the beginning of kind of my training in, in spiritual practice. That is so interesting because I remember, and we, we've had the privilege of, of sitting down with both Krishnamurti and then also with the physicist David Bohm, uh, who worked yes. with Einstein. And it was very interesting. You picked up that book because there are many, uh, and I think people can find it online somewhere, there are many videos of very deep conversations that David Bohm had with Krishnamurti. So here is the scientist coming together with the philosopher so to speak. And and so that, I, I just think of the synchronicity of that. Do you, do you, the synchronicity is astounding, actually, because um, at that time, I had not heard of David Bohm or Krishnamurti, even though those dialogues had gone on and they went on for 20-some years. And actually, uh, David Bohm, I, I had the privilege also of spending uh, some days with him uh, some years later and was able to share with him some of my deep musings that actually are some of the formative ideas that were developed in this book, Belonging to God. And so I was very inspired to meet David Bohm and deeply inspired by their later dialogues when I learned about it. But at that moment, I did not know about this at all. So you're right, it's very striking. And Bohm actually, he, to me, was a true scientist because he carried his quest for truth beyond the laboratory even though he did that impeccably, and as you said, was a colleague of Einstein's, he also carried his quest to some of the great spiritual sages on the planet and really wanted to understand what is the nature of reality that is consistent with the broadest set of human data, not just scientific data, but mystical data and even artistic data. So I was very inspired by the depth and breadth of his inquiry into the nature of reality. This led, uh, led you to uh, kind of the same quest, so to speak, as, as David had of questioning 
okay, what is the nature of reality? And I know in this book and in in your studies, your contemplative studies, you have also done a lot of work in the world on peace and reconciliation. I mean, that's been a very important part of your work in the world. Yes. And so when you take some of the major wars and disagreements we have are between religions, are, are done in the name of religions. So what can you say about what you have found in your study of some of the major religions where, where they might come together and where they might fall apart? Well, as you correctly said, there's much conflict that is constellated around the different religions. And there's a focus on the different theologies, the contradictions across the theological and systems of prayer and practice. But actually what I have found, as have others before me, that the commonalities across the religions are far more profound and rich than are the differences. And so the commonalities really point to a universal path of the heart, a universal path of love. And this whole inspiration of the human, the highest purpose for being human, which is to enter that transformative journey of consciousness that leads us to what is called union with God in the theistic traditions or realization, enlightenment in the non-theistic traditions. But it's that transformative journey of the depths of one's being that is really shared in common across the religions. And the stages of that journey are very similar. The processes of purification, of illumination, of coming into a greater degree of humility, of facing one's own darkness, and then having those things transmuted and replaced by a light that comes from another plane of existence that begins to illuminate the being. All of these things are inherent in the spiritual journey. That journey is the whole point of religions in the first place. I'm thinking of the analogy that you have of um, the the forest and the trees, and there are all these different trees. And can you describe that analogy? Yes, that the, that the religions um, can be kind of similar, uh, likened to the trees in a forest. And they're all different kinds of trees. Some are tall and thin. Others are round and short. Some have leaves. Some have needles. But they all draw their life from the same hidden waters they're all rooted in the same ground. They all draw from these hidden waters below the ground, and they all stretch up vertically to the one light of the sun above. So too with the religions. They have these different outer forms, but their inner essence is identical, and they all reach to the same supreme light and get their life from that light and those hidden waters. And then, then rooted down into the hidden waters and the deep, the, the wisdom of Absolutely. That. Yes. Absolutely. If they're the same, I know that you go through different scriptural things. You, you actually, it's not just that you're saying this, but you've done a deep study of scriptures, of the Quran, of the, the Bible, and also the Hindu, Bhagavad Gita. And th- so that's very profound that you will find these passages or writings from the mystics of any of these different traditions so can, can you name a few of the scriptures that back you up on this? Well, as you said, I have gone into those three scriptures in particular. 
um, I wanted to focus on the theistic traditions because there is, a, I think, a contemporary bias against the theistic traditions as being somehow a little less advanced or less evolved um, compared to the non-dual uh, path of realization, the direct non-dual path. And um, so I wanted to kind of correct that bias because um, the theistic traditions are also ultimately non-dual. They lead to non-dual realization of the supreme reality, which is called God. Um, but they start in a dualistic place with a place of experiencing oneself as a soul and then giving and entering into devotional practices in relation to a supreme being which is called God in the theistic traditions. But ultimately, the nature of that God is realized as an unconditioned, uncompounded absolute that is essentially the same as the ultimate reality that's affirmed, for example, in Buddhism or a, a Brahma Nirguna, the ultimate reality affirmed in Advaita Vedanta. So I think it's very important to recognize that the theistic traditions lead through the path of love to a non-dual realization of God. So that's one reason I focused on the theistic traditions. The other reason is that the theistic traditions really start with the power of devotion in the heart. And this is a profound power that can lead the human being all the way through to full realization of divinity and of what is called God. And that, too, sometimes has been uh, given short shrift in our culture. We'll go into more detail of that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. William Keeping, and he's the author of Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and a Universal Path of Divine Love. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, thepathofdivinelove.org. Org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. William Keeping, and he's the author of Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and a Universal Path of Divine Love. So, Will, you were just talking about the, the two paths, so to speak, that will ultimately lead to the same thing. And one, in these times, a lot of people, uh, spiritual seekers, are looking at non-dualism and that whole realm of what what is called the direct path. And then it, it kind of poo-poos or, or looks down on, on those in the, what is 
sometimes termed the bhakti path or the path of love, the path of the heart, the path of devotion, because it seems as if it's dualistic. I'd love for you to say more about that. Well, this is actually an age-old bias that goes all the way back to Shankara, or perhaps before. Shankara himself advocated um, the direct path of knowledge, and yet Shankara... Wait, now tell, tell us who he lived when... And... Shankara lived in the 8th century, and he was the great uh, Hindu mystic that basically traveled all across India and sort of reclaimed... Hinduism, sort of revitalized Hinduism, and is credited with having established four different schools that led to the, the four Mahavakyas and the Upanishads that he emphasized. And so he's one of the great exponents of Hinduism, very profound. And he, um, he tended to advocate the non-dual path of Advaita Vedanta. But what's ironic is that in his own path, when he got stuck at a certain point and couldn't proceed further, he entered into an intensive period of devotion and wrote these incredible hymns to the goddess. And it was after that that he was then able to proceed further. So he himself went through this devotional, intensely devotional period in order to advance his path. And in those poems stand as really exquisite testimonies of the devotional path. Um, Aurobindo also speaks about this, Sri Aurobindo, and he says also that— Also an, an Indian— Yeah, Aurobindo was a great uh, 20th century Indian sage who died about 1951. And he really synthesized, in a certain sense, uh, Western philosophy and Eastern mysticism in what he called his integral yoga. And Aurobindo also speaks about the, the, uh, the, those on the— path of knowledge sometimes looked down upon those on the path of bhakti or devotion as, as, as a thing inferior, not suited for those who are ready for the heights of the truth. So there is this sometimes this dismissal of the devotional path. And so part of what I wanted to do in this book was to really articulate how the path of devotion actually leads to the radical full realization of what could be called non-dual realization of God. And we see this across the traditions. In fact, it's proclaimed in the scriptures. For example, in the Christian scripture, Jesus says, you know, I and the Father are one. He repeatedly affirms his oneness with God. We see the same thing in um, the Upanishads, you know, aham brahmasmi, I am Brahman. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna promises radical union with his very being. He says to Arjuna, Arjuna is basically the human disciple. Krishna is God incarnated. And basically Krishna says, you will enter into my being and you will know me and you will come to me. And he promises this union with the absolute being, the divine being. And we see this across the traditions. So what about uh, in Islam? In Islam, it's a slightly different because they don't talk about union with God because that would be uh, essentially God is always incommensurate with all of manifest reality. But they talk about nearness to God. And this nearness to God gets infinitesimally close. So that one can become increasingly near to God, increasingly near to God, so near that in a sense the distinction dissolves. But they always 
theologically maintain the distinction. But what I find, and there's actually some tension between some of the greatest mystics like Ibn Arabi and Rumi and others, and some of the orthodoxy of Islam, which is always very determined to maintain that distinction. But what I find particularly compelling is the phenomenology, the actual Sufi and Islamic mystics. For example, there's a hadith that says, my servant never ceases to draw nigh unto me with acts of devotion. And when I love him, this is Allah speaking, this is the voice of God. When I love him, I become the eyes by which he sees, the mouth by which he speaks, the feet by which he walks. So this is the process of divinization where the divine being itself takes up residence in the human devotee. And we find almost the exact same statement, for example, from Teresa of Avila, who says, Christ has no body now but yours, no feet but yours, no mouth but yours. And from St. Paul, who says, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So basically, the process is the same. In, in Hinduism, it could be, I live, yet not I, but Krishna liveth in me. In Buddhism, I live, yet not I, but Buddha liveth in me. And in, in, in Islam, I live, yet not I, but Allah liveth in me. That transformative process is what I'm saying is the same across the traditions. You just mentioned that that was a verse from the Hadith. And if you can explain or say exactly what the Hadith is in Islam. Yeah, there's two uh, sources, canonical sources in Islam. One is, of course, the Quran itself, which is a foundational source. And the other one is what are called the sayings of the prophet. And they are called the hadith or ahadith is the plural. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's, that's helpful for people who, who are not as familiar. Yes. So going back to the idea of uh, the path of knowledge or non-dualism, I'm thinking of... Uh, that's so appealing to Westerners who live in their heads and the path of knowledge. It, it seems very seductive. But uh, it, it's, it's a difficult path. I mean, that, it, that direct path is fraught with some dangers and people might get um, confused or, or, or ha fall off of the path easily because they just get discouraged. Well, it, it is said to be a more difficult path, um, and a number of commentators, Ramakrishna, for example, the great Indian sage of, of the 18th, uh, 19th century, um, said that you know, the, the path is more difficult uh, than the path of love. Uh, Krishna Prem, one of the great uh, 20th century uh, mystics of India, also speaks about how the path, the direct path of knowledge, is more difficult for most people. The path of love enables every experience of life to be used as a stepping stone to come into that communion with God. And the entire manifest world is seen as the body of God, and one's relating to it, then every action becomes a practice of devotion. So um, I don't mean to denigrate the path of exactly. knowledge. It's a very yes, profound very, path. Yes. I'm simply saying that the path of love is also a very profound path and leads to the same place. Meister Eckhart says it very beautifully when he says, this I and that God become one is and act in the world as this isness. So what happens in that path is that the I and God both are dissolved into this one being, which is the dynamic isness of divine 
consciousness, and one becomes that, that is a non-dual realization of God, which happens through the path of devotion. Well, I, in my experience, it's something that we all can tap into so easily because we've all felt in some moment in our lives a feeling in our heart of oneness with and love for someone or something or even even our 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 dogs or our cats i mean i mean I, that may seem mundane but we know that feeling and and it seems to me it's it's a direct path to go right to that feeling and know that that somehow that is the god within is am i where am i with well, that well with that here's what i would say to that you're right on the track here because there's a beautiful saying from rumi where he says thought gives off smoke to prove the existence of fire the mystic sits within the burning there is a fire in the heart that fire of love that we all feel when we feel that inspiration of love. We feel it very strongly when we fall in love. But if we open ourselves, we feel it every time we walk outside and we see a leaf on a tree. We see the beautiful colors. We see a child playing. We see that beautiful heart-melting look in the eyes of a puppy. These are, there's a power there. That's the power of love. That power has the power to take us right through our ego in our deepest identification and become one with the supreme being. And the reason is that the inmost source of that love is none other than the transcendent essence of God that dwells in the heart. The two are one. And this is the, the consistent uh, teaching across all the religions, the oneness with, with that essence. And I would affirm also that that inmost essence of the theistic traditions, which we call the very heart of God, is none other than the supreme reality affirmed by Buddhism. And this is actually part of the thesis, for example, of a beautiful book called Common Ground Between Islam and Buddhism, written by a scholar named Reza Shah Kazami. And he makes that same, same statement that the that what the Buddhists affirm as ultimate reality is none other than what monotheists call the very essence of God. So are you saying, like, in Buddhism, if you're working with um, a teacher, uh, a Rinpoche, a Lama, and they talk about devotion, it's sometimes interpreted as devotion to that person, that individual, but what they're really talking about is a more universal devotion. I, I think so. For example, Urjin uh, Rinpoche, who's one of the great uh, uh, Dzogchen masters, the father of Sokni Rinpoche and Mingyu Rinpoche, who are very popular teachers today. And Urjin uh, Rinpoche, in his book Rainbow Painting, speaks of how devotion is absolutely essential on the path. And he actually says, this is Buddhist now, this is straight Dzogchen. And he says, people come to me and they say, I've been practicing meditation for years, but I don't seem to get anywhere. And Urjan Rinpoche says, that's because you're, they're using the wrong method and that devotion is absolutely essential. So in Buddhism, you have devotion to 
the truth or devotion to enlightenment. In the theistic paths, you have devotion to the supreme reality that we call God. But the fuel for the path in either case is this strong fire in the heart that propels you, you know, into that higher states of consciousness and has, gives you the power and the courage to face whatever obstacles come along the way, including your own shadow side and your own darkness, all of which has to be transmuted. So the process is the same. I'm here with Dr. William Keeping, and he is the author of Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and a Universal Path of Divine Love. And his website is thepathofdivinelove.org, O-R-G, thepathofdivinelove.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Dr. William Keeping, and he's the author of Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and a Universal Path of Divine Love. Dr. Keeping is a mathematical physicist and a longtime contemplative on the path of, of love, of divine love. And, and we're talking about non-dualism and dualism. And is there anything that you'd like to add to that? I just want to say that in my researches on this, I came across the term for surrender in the Hindu tradition, property or sharanagati, um, which is relatively little known. I noticed in the commentaries on the Gita, for example, and the Upanishads by most of the kind of familiar sources, I didn't see any reference to this. But then I found a beautiful articulation of the path of divine love by Ramana Maharshi himself, who is regarded as the master of Advaita Vedanta, and who most Buddhists respect as having reached a similar stage of realization as the highest Buddhist masters. But listen to what Ramana Maharshi says now about the path of love. He says, take the case of bhakti, the path of love. I approach the Lord and pray to be absorbed in Him. I then surrender myself in faith and by concentration. What remains afterwards? In place of the original I, perfect self-surrender leaves a residuum of God in which the I is lost. This is the highest form of devotion. Parabhakti, he says. Surrender, or the height of vairagya. The I casts off the illusion of I and yet remains as I. Such is the paradox of self-realization. The realized do not see any contradiction in it. The major word in all of that too, and especially for Westerners, is the word surrender. This is the key, yes. That's a toughie, to surrender. So tell us, um, what advice do you have for surrendering? I mean, that's... Uh, 
Surrender is a difficult one for the West, and it's associated with concepts of humiliation and defeat. And the actual process of surrender is articulated very beautifully in the Hindu tradition of uh, Vaishnavite Hinduism, Ramanuja, who was born about a thousand years ago. And he identifies five or six stages to the process. And what I found in my studies with these stages of surrender are there in all of the theistic traditions. So I lay that out in my book. But the essence of surrender needs to be understood more as unconditional consent, that one lays oneself in humility at the feet of the supreme reality, whether we call it God or Dharmakaya, and one allows that supreme reality to do its work on one's inner being. This is what it really means. It's not only not a, a defeat or a humiliation, it's actually simply the recognition that I as a human soul am incapable of realizing full enlightenment of my, with my own resources. I am incapable of realizing the fullness of divine love through my human faculties, and so I offer them up and allow the divine to do its work on me. And don't get in the way of that inner process. Okay, that brings up, if I'm inviting that in, then there's something separate from me or something uncovered in me, something veiled in me. Yes, this is important. This is part of the stages of the realization. The first stage of realization is the realization that there's something greater whatever it is we call it, greater sense of consciousness, greater being, there is an other. And we then realize that we want to be in relation to this other because that other is foundational to life. But then as we go through the process, we come to a very radical realization that we are that other and that ultimately there is no other and that we were that other all along. That just reminds me of the T.S. Eliot poem at the, di- at the end of yes. his Four Quartets, you know, and I arrive at the place where I started yes. and see it for the first time. I'm quoting it incorrectly, but it's, that's the essence of it, and really recognize it for the first time. So it's kind of like arriving home again where you always were. That's correct, but with a vastly expanded awareness of who you are now that wasn't there before. The awareness wasn't there, but the ontological identity was there. So that goes into, let's, that, that really takes us into some science. Because in you being a scientist, in, in your background, you have brought forth some ideas of how science also supports this, this idea of, of consciousness, and, and you talk about fractals, and you bring up, as we said in the very beginning of the conversation, the work of David Bohm. And I'd love for you to help us understand how science then plays a part in this understanding. Well, the Western scientific tradition has, as we know, developed a very powerful method for uh, investigating the nature of reality. And actually, that method applies to spiritual inquiry. If you look at the greatest mystics, they had a kind of scientific 
rigor about them. They wanted independent verification. They checked things out carefully. They didn't just take uh, an intuition to be true without really rigorously testing it with their peers, which is exactly what scientists do in their peer-reviewed journals. So the basic process of scientific inquiry, I think, applies in the mystical journey. Um, what has happened is that some of the assumptions of the, the, the materialistic worldview that have gotten uh, strengthened in the Western scientific tradition um, are actually have gotten in the way. That only matter and energy exist. That's and right. Nothing beyond that. That's correct. Matter and energy are the two constituents. And one of the great contributions of David Bohm was that he went into the depths of that dialogue with those spiritual masters, and then he came up with a theory that included all of science, but expanded it to include consciousness. And he called this the implicate order. So the implicate order is the invisible realm, essentially the spiritual realm. And then the explicate order is the matter-energy interactions that are a subject of normal science. And what Bohm showed was that these two are part of a larger seamless whole. And he also showed that this is consistent with even the very mathematics of the foundational equation of quantum mechanics, the Schrodinger equation. And Bohm showed how that equation essentially necessitates something that he called the implicate order. Now, and then he came up with this very beautiful statement that a hidden order may be present in what appears to be random. And this is really important because when science comes across something that we don't understand and we see no pattern there, we label it random, we describe it statistically, but we assume there's no deeper order there because we can't see it. And what Bohm says, no, there may be much more subtle levels of order that we're not able to see with our current scientific instrumentation, but they may be there nonetheless. And with that understanding, he was able to open science into a whole vast realm of the spiritual subtle levels. And this, I think, is really an important breakthrough. So are, are different scientists... Uh adhering to this and, and studying this and expanding on this and deepening this? Well, it's interesting that Bohm, uh, his theory was largely rejected in the flow of the politics of science, if you will. And um, back in the 30s, uh, John von Neumann, mathematician, sort of proved uh, that that kind of theory couldn't work. But then in 1952, Bohm found that his proof was wrong. But by that point, everyone had gone for his, what's called... His, the, uh, the, this other... Yeah, von Neumann's proof was no, mistaken, was that, mistaken that the Bohm-type theories couldn't work. And Bohm found an error in his proof. But by that point, the whole Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics had taken root, mm. which basically said that a statistical description of reality is the most that we can ever know about reality. And they therefore imputed this randomness to nature itself. Bohm and Einstein objected to that. They said, that could be just our ignorance. It doesn't mean that reality itself is statistical. It just means that our ignorance enables us not to know anything deeper than this. So what happened was, then John Bell came along with Bell's theorem in the 60s. He was inspired by Bohm's work. And so to make and a long... What was his theory? Well, he had this whole idea of Bell's theorem, and he's the one who developed essentially the foundation for quantum entanglement which says that everything is fundamentally interconnected to everything else. 
And if you have two photons or two uh, electrons of opposite spin on different opposite sides of the universe and you measure one, you immediately know the spin state of the other, even though it's, you know, many light years away. Or so, if you change the spin state of that one, it simultaneously changes it determines it determines the spin state of the other one. That's determines, correct. Determines right. And so this was what so that led that to that was this a spooky spooky action at a distance, which Einstein also objected to. Um, but what's happened is that part has been validated that that shows a fundamental interconnectedness of the entire universe. But what's very interesting now is that Bohm's work is getting a revival. It's experiencing a revival. And one thing that's leading to that is that they are observing quantum mechanical behavior in certain fluid dynamic systems. Quantum mechanic behavior normally has been understood to only take place at very small scales. But a group of researchers at MIT and elsewhere have actually found certain quantum mechanical behavior in macroscopic fluid dynamic systems. Like macroscopic, like galaxies? Is that no, what no, no. I'm talking about just a, a, a system in the laboratory okay. of oil droplets bouncing on water. Okay, so that's a macro rather macro, than yeah. the atomic level. That's right, rather than the atomic level. And so uh, there's a whole revival of interest in Bohm's understanding. Now, this is mostly on his quantum mechanical understanding, but what I'm very enthused by is that I think this will also lead to a revival of his interest and Bohm's whole understanding of the implicate order and the way that he saw that the spiritual realm and the material realm are part of a seamless larger unity, which he called the holo movement. The, in, in the holo movement, there, what does this have to do with consciousness then? So what it has to do with the holo part is refers to holographic or a hologram, which is a part of special case of the mathematics of fractals. And here I think there's a very important parallel with mystical consciousness. And a fractal is a mathematical structure that's something like a set of Russian dolls. You know how you have a Russian doll and you open it up and you find a littler one and you keep opening and you keep getting smaller and smaller ones, but they each look like the original. They're really miniature versions of the original. And a, and a fractal is a recent discovery just in the last 25 years or so of certain mathematical structures where you have a certain a figure, and then embedded within it, you have these miniature replicas that go down to millions of times smaller, and yet they each tiny one embedded within it has the exact same level of complexity and structure as the original. We'll talk more about that fascinating information in just one moment. I'm here with Dr. William Keeping. He's the author of Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and a Universal Path of Divine Love. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. William Keeping, and he's a mathematical physicist and a longtime contemplative. And his newest book is called Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and a Universal Path of Divine Love. And, Will, we're talking about fractal science and the discovery of fractals. And you also have looked at how this is spoken about by the mystics as well. I mean, it's come. some mystics have come at this from a wholly different point of view. Yes. Um, fractals are found throughout nature. We see them in coastlines. We see them in galaxies. We, we have, for example, neurons in the brain have a similar structure to galaxies. There are these self-similar patterns across nature. And what I'm uh, speaking to in this book is proposing that consciousness itself has this same structure. So, for example, Rumi says this beautiful thing. He says that the secret turning in your heart is the entire universe turning. So here Rumi is speaking to a property of fractal consciousness, that in the depths of your heart, there is a process which is identical with the entire universal process. I just want to say about that, because I went to a talk by you, and and you showed up on the, the screen a, a, a picture of... 100,000 galaxies, the yes. movement of 100,000 galaxies that was able to be done in a computerized version. That's right. And then you overlaid that picture with the human heart, and it was amazing here, the movement of, of our galaxies that we are part of, that the Milky Way is just a tiny little speck of is the same as our own personal human heart. Yes, that's a very striking discovery that was just made uh, in the last couple years, was published two years ago, and it's called Laniakea, which refers to our local supercluster, which consists of 100,000 galaxies, and it's 520 million light years across. And what they have discovered for the first time by combining data from all these different telescopes is that... They've seen the trajectory of these galaxies, and they are basically converging on a structure that looks very much like a gigantic cosmic heart. And this was published in the scientific journal Nature. So it's a very striking metaphorical illustration. But what I'm actually speaking to is something even more glorious, because even that is still limited to the local supercluster. And what I'm saying, for example, as Meister Eckhart said, he said, when God gifts himself, of course, he's using the male gender, and we know that God is beyond gender. But he says, when God gives himself to the devotee, he pours all of himself, all of his beauty, all of his wisdom, all of his divinity, all of his infinity into the heart of the devotee. Now, that is the very claim that Jesus made. He said, everything I have is yours. Everything you have is mine. Jesus is claiming everything that God has is his. How can this be? This is why the mystics were basically, you know, executed as blasphemous. The same thing happened to Al-Halaj, the great uh, Sufi mystic who proclaimed an al-Haq, I am the supreme reality. He was executed for the same reason Jesus was. They, because all those around him could not possibly understand this as anything other than the most extreme hubris. But what we understand from fractal consciousness is that they're speaking the literal truth. 
the full infinity of the divine consciousness can be fully instantiated in the depths of the human being if consciousness is structured in this fractal way because the miniature version of the whole contains the entire infinite complexity and richness of the original. So the microcosm profoundly replicates the macrocosm. You've used the term God a lot in this conversation. And when, when you use that, some people will recoil from the idea of God because we hold this limited view. And I'd like for you to say, when, when you use that term, what, what are you saying? What, what does it mean to you? What is it symbolizing for you? For me, it symbolizes the supreme source of all that exists or the ultimate reality, that the ultimate nature of what is that is responsible for creating all that, that is. So you could also use God if you want to be a bit cutesy as, uh, as a bit, if, for example, if you believe in evolution and that the only source of creation is random chance, then you could use it as an acronym, um, which would be the generalized operating dice, G-O-D, <laughs> that are rolled in each moment of cosmic evolution. Even then, you still belong to God because were it not for those dice, you wouldn't exist. Or if you're a Buddhist, you could use it to, to mean uh, grand omnipotent dharmakaya, G-O-D. <laughs> you don't have to anthropomorphize it into a gigantic living being. But there is this supreme reality and the ling linguistic construct that we have for it. We need some term, whether it's dharmakaya or the Tao that cannot be named or God, but God is understood really as the supreme, infinite, uh, incomprehensible, uncompounded source of all that is. And one last thing about that, that my mentor, one of my mentors, Father Thomas Keating, convened a group of religious leaders from all the major world religions over a 30-year period at his monastery, and they came up with eight principles that defined essentially a universal definition for God and the process of the spiritual transformative journey. And those eight principles are in the book. So that's how I understand God. And those principles are spoken of without mentioning the G-O-D word. But they're really the principles of the human, the depth of the human soul. And the essence of it is the depth of the human soul is one with this supreme reality. So in the one with this supreme reality, can it also be personal? You know, I mean, then that feels like, oh, okay, that it's all this. It's so big that it that it, it's not. It no longer is personal. Can can you say something about that? Well, this is where I think it's very much can be personal, and this to me is the great, profound, supreme intimacy of the theistic traditions, because the personal God, the personal dimension of the supreme reality, relates directly to the inmost depths of the human heart. And so, for example, Jesus speaks about this when he refers to God as Abba. This is like a personal beloved. Even when he's on the cross and he says, Father, Abba, why hast thou forsaken me? He's begging to a very direct connection that he has with this supreme being. Uh, in the end of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, who's been speaking about God in all these different ways, drops all of the third person and speaks directly to Arjuna in the second person and says, you know, you are my beloved Arjuna. 
Make me your beloved, and you will come into me, and we will have this incredible, profound intimacy as you become me. This is a very profound, personal intimacy from the supreme being. And, and, and Arjuna, God has already described who he really is. He says, I am the divinity that exists throughout all of manifestation and exists throughout all of non-manifestation and is higher than both yet dwells and inheres in all of it. That is who I am. And you and I can become one through the power of love. It's an unbelievably beautiful promise of union, of supreme intimacy with the infinite absolute. Wow, that's breathtaking. <laughs> I mean, I can feel the power of that. And I know that the one of the metaphors that you've used in, in, you, you, in divine love is about the fire of divine love, the transformative light that, that never changes, that it cannot be altered, and that's available. Can you say something about the fire here before we close out this conversation. Yes, to me, the fire of, of love in the heart is the absolute key, that it has to be ignited, and that this we do through our spiritual practices. And what happens is, as that fire burns, it attracts, of course, what does fire do? It brings warmth, and it brings light, and it burns away everything that stands in its way. And so what happens is that fire in the heart attracts the divine fire in the source, and the two fires become one fire. And that is the unity. The unity happens in the union of the fire of the heart with the fire in the heart of God. And then the different religions are all but different colors of flame in the one fire. You know, you have different flames. You have blue flame and yellow flame and red flame, but they're all fire. And I see the different traditions as basically all different flames in that one fire of total radical transformation in which the depth of the human heart is united through its fire into the fire of the supreme. So in this way, whatever our tradition that we feel called to, we can go to this deep, deep wisdom, these deep waters and pull down this fire, that that's available to us. That, I believe, is available to every human heart. And I also think it's essential when the practices don't work, when someone practices for years in a sort of uh, empty or dry ritualism and doesn't get anywhere, it's because that fire in the heart has not been ignited and engaged. It's that fire in the heart that has the capacity to burn through our limitations and that also draws down, if you will, the divine fire so <laughs> may we all be able to draw down that divine fire uh, in our hearts uh, is my prayer. I want to thank you so much, Will, for being with us today on New Dimensions. Thank you, Justine, and may we all indeed unite with that divine fire. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dr. William Keeping. He spells his last name K-E-E-P-I-N. William Keeping, and he's the author of Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and the Universal Path of Divine Love. If you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, thepathofdivinelove.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms.
You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3599. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org where you can subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions Archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.